Welcome to today's Community Cast. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm the pastor at Community Brookside, a new church plant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We are so blessed by your presence, and we hope that today's content will bring you joy. So I want to start off with a story this morning. I'm going to have to read it to you. So there was a man named Bob Harris, who is a weatherman for the New York TV station WPIX-TV. And he was also part of the nationally syndicated independent network news. He had to weather a public storm of his own making in 1979. Though he had studied math, physics, and geology at three different colleges, he left school without a degree, but with a strong desire to be a media weatherman. He phoned WCBS-TV, introducing himself as a PhD in geophysics from Columbia University. The phony degree got him in the door. After a two-month tryout, he was hired as an off-camera forecaster for WCBS. For the next decade, that's 10 years his career flourished. He became widely known as Dr. Bob. He was also hired by the New York Times as a counseling meteorologist. The same year, both the Long Island Railroad and the baseball commissioner, Bowie Kuhn, hired him. Forty years of age and living his childhood dream, he found himself in a bit of a public disgrace and national humiliation when an anonymous letter was prompted WCBS management to investigate his academic credentials. Both the station and the New York Times fired him. His story got attention across the land. He was on the Today Show and in People Weekly, among other news outlets. He thought he would lose his home and thought he'd never work in the media again. Several days later, the Long Island Railroad and, and Bowie Kuhn announced that they would not fire him. KNEW-TV gave him a job. He admits it was a dreadful mistake on his part and doubtless played a role in his divorce. He says, I took a shortcut that turned out to be the long way around, and one day the bill came due. I will be sorry as long as I live. Have you ever heard the phrase, you reap what you sow? So today, it means that you have to face up to the consequences of your actions, much like the story that we just heard. But do you know what sowing and reaping, like what they really mean, how they initially came into our context? So obviously, sowing is the planting of a specific crop. Often, it's used to denote planting seeds for fruits or for vegetables that will eventually produce something that needs to be harvested, something useful, something for food, something that that humanity can use. So reaping is actually the act of harvesting that crop. So the understanding of reaping, the understanding of reaping what is sown is a reminder that whatever you plant, you will harvest. So if you plant corn, you're going to get corn. If you plant tomatoes, you're definitely going to get tomatoes every single time. You can't plant okra and expect to get watermelons. That's not how planting seeds works. So the phrase, you reap what you sow, means that what you put into the world also comes back to you. It's not just about planting and harvesting anymore. It's this phrase that means that whatever you give out into the world, whatever you put out into the world is going to come back to you. Throughout versions of the Bible, sowing is used as a metaphor for one's actions and and reaping for the results of those actions. In Hebrew Bible's book of Hosea, God finds the Israelites worshiping an idol of a calf. And in the 1611 King James Version, it says this. It says, they sow the wind, 
and they reap the whirlwind. The saying means that the consequences of already bad actions will be even worse. In his Christian New Testament epistle to the Galatians, Paul, the apostle, writes, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for, who, for whatever, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He goes on to instruct the Galatians to sow to please the spirit rather than the flesh, indicating that the spiritual life will result in a, war, in a reward. So in the story that we just read about Bob Harris, it's a story about sowing and reaping. And Bob sowed deception, and he reaped the fruit of deception. He lost his job. He lost his wife. The Bible has a lot to say about the principles of sowing and reaping, but the book of Esther that we started last week is especially vocal about justice and judgment and reward. So last week, we kind of got a bit of an overview of the story of Esther as we talked about um, intentionally being a force for good in the world because our world is broken. But I kind of did this really brief overview, and I intentionally left out a lot of the scripture that comes through the book of Esther. And I want to encourage you, even after we're done talking about the book of Esther, go back and read it, because when you read it in its language, uh, you read it in its entirety, it means so much more. But as you may know, the book of Esther is written about a woman named Esther, who's chosen to be queen of Persia. And the story is really interesting how she gets to become queen. She's a Jewish woman who is chosen to be queen because of her beauty. But no one knows that she's Jewish. And as the story plays out, a plot arises to destroy the, the Jewish people. Because of her proximity to power, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, asks Esther to intervene for her people to save them. Esther pushes back because she knows that if any person tries to go in and see the king by themselves without actually being asked to come see the king of Persia, that the king will have them killed. Mordecai reminds Esther that perhaps God has placed her in this position of power as the queen exactly for a time like this when she's needed most. The story's climax happens as Esther approaches the king and convinces him to relent from this terrible act of genocide. And the king decides to spare her life and then also grants her request. So throughout the story, the story kind of hinges on, on Esther's willingness to do what she's being called to do, even if it means risking her own life. Esther saves all of her people by her willingness to put down her own needs. And she becomes self-sacrificial so that she could plead the case of her people before the king. Well, now that we've gotten that kind of overview again out of the way, let's look at where the book of Esther speaks deeply about reaping what is sown. Let's pick up after Mordecai unveils the plot, and he uncovers this plot uh, of the two of the king's men to, uh, to kill the Persian king, King Xerxes. And after all the events have taken place, after the king kills those guys, we pick up the story in Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I invite you to now follow along. And here's what scripture says for us this morning. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of any of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. The royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? 
Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about what uh, about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a very way or looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first, first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. That's $143 million. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, and he gave it to the Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep your money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed in his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So, as we're setting up this whole you reap as you sow theme in Esther, think about how Haman has acted, right? So this is a man who, because he's been elevated above other people, he feels entitled to their respect. And I think all of us know that respect is earned, and you get respect when you show respect to others, right? In this case, we don't really understand or see why Haman was elevated to such a high seat in Xerxes' court, but we know the king is happy with him, and he's given him a very prominent position. From what we've read, we can see that Haman is conceited. He's also easily angered to rage when Mordecai doesn't bow down to him. He feels this sense of entitlement. And so because his feelings are hurt, he decides to killing Mordecai wasn't enough. He decides that killing Mordecai and his entire people is a way to make right the wrong that, that Mordecai has shown him. So after this decree is made, Mordecai convinces Esther to make the stand for their people. Esther approaches the king, and Haman is there with the king when, when she says, hey, I, I, need to make, uh, I need to make a proposal to you, king, but let's do it tomorrow. And then she invites the king and Haman to a banquet that she's going to throw. So let's see what happens next 
in Haman's part of this story. Again, this happens right after Esther invites King and Haman to come to a, a banquet the next day. And verse 9, in chapter 5, verse 9 says this, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits because he had been invited along with the king to go to a banquet with the queen. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways that the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching a height of 50 cubits, and that's about 75 feet. Then ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. So can you imagine, like, being so angry and burnt up that, uh, you know, somebody disrespected you, that somebody was not willing to bow down to you and show you the kind of respect that you feel like you deserved? Could you imagine what, like, that even sounded like? Can you believe that, you know, Mordecai didn't bow down to me? I mean, to me, it sounds like just this huge first world problem. Like, I've, out of all the issues in the world that we could be talking about, somebody doesn't show you the respect that you deserve. It seems like it's kind of blown out of proportion. But we talked just last week about how cruel the world was during Esther's time. And this is the perfect example. I can't imagine me telling a group of my friends that somebody didn't treat me the way that I felt the way that they should treat me. And just for that, my friends respond by saying, hey, just put up a 75-foot pole and have the king impale them on it like a trophy. And the crazy thing is about this conversation is that all of them, Haman, his wife, all of his friends, they expect the king to grant their request. Like, it's no big deal. Just have him killed. The king will totally do that. We talked last week about how we have to constantly be the good in the world because the world is a hard place to live. And this is a perfect example of that. So right after this episode with Haman and his friends and his wife, the king has some trouble sleeping. The story cuts away from that episode with Haman telling his friends what, what happened with Mordecai and them encouraging him to build this pole that they can impale Mordecai on. And the, the story just cuts over to the king. And the king is having a hard time falling asleep. And like the rest of us, he has a book of his deeds brought in and read to him, right? Like we all have that happen to us sometimes when we get bored or tired. We just have somebody come read about all of our life's accomplishments. No, no, okay, no. In Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, the story continues. It says, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak with the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, well, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. 
When Ammon entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, well, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn in and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So the king orders Mordecai to be honored in the way that Haman had recommended, right? So Haman, we know, is so conceited. And in this moment, he just assumes that the king means, hey, there's no one else that can be honored more than me. So let all these great things happen, right? Let, let all this honor and splendor be relished and given to him because he thinks it's about him when really it's about Mordecai. Can you imagine how mad Haman would have been, right? Have you ever had anything like that happen to you? Maybe the person you despise or the person that you wished would get fired from work becomes like employee of the month or they get a bonus that you didn't get. Like that just burns us up, right? And we get a reminder that sometimes the way we expect things to happen are nothing to God. It's a solid reminder that we should not be prideful because when we're prideful, it makes our fall that much more hard. In verse 11, scripture continues. So Haman got the robe, the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and he led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And I imagine he said that kind of half-hearted. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. How embarrassing, right? He has to run home with his head covered. He's just so filled with shame that the man that he is planning to have killed, the man that he was going to ask the king to put on a 75-foot pole in front of his house, is now the man that the king wants to honor. And now Haman has to do the honoring of that man. Oh, what a twist, right? In Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, Scripture goes on. Says, so the king and Haman went to the Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked Queen Esther, What is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, but no such distress would justify disturbing the king. 
King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Who is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and he left his wine, which, by the way, he left his wine. People don't do that. And he went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, attending the king, said, A pole reaching a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. While this story is about the courageous life and sacrifice that Esther potentially makes, it's also a cautionary tale about what we need to be careful about. And how we need to treat others because we absolutely reap what we sow. Haman was wicked and prideful and mean and self-centered. He tried to destroy not just Mordecai, but his entire people. He tried to commit genocide because his feelings were hurt. And in the end, he literally suffered the fate that he had planned for the person who made him so angry. In the end, it was his pole that he had built to impale Mordecai on that he himself hung on. He literally reaped the hateful end that he tried to sow. We can also look at the, the positive example in the story. Esther and Mordecai both were offered opportunities to, good, to do good for other people, right? So Mordecai saved the life of the king when he exposed uh, this, this uh, uh, assassination plot. And Esther reaches out into the lives of her people and she says, King, I, I need you to save my life, but not just mine, but the lives of all of my people. She risked her life to enter into the king's presence without permission. And both of them reaped what they had sown, Mordecai later on in the story is basically appointed second in command to the king once Haman is destroyed. And Esther lives as queen. She enjoys the splendors of the palace and she saved the life of her people. We reap what we sow always. Sometimes it may feel like we've been waiting for our, our crop to come in. Like I've done nothing but plant seeds of goodness in this world. Lord, when is my time to reap? When is my time to harvest the good that I've given? Hear me when I say this. It's coming. I promise it's coming. When we do good things, good will come of it. Not always like we expect. Not always as soon as we'd like it. But good brings about good Every time. Likewise, if we do evil, we expect evil to be the result. Proverbs 22 verse 8 says this, Those who plant injustice will harvest disaster, and the reign of terror will come to an end. So we as people of faith need to do our best in every single way to sow seeds of goodness in every situation we're able to sow goodness into. Even when it's hard, 
even when it's awkward, even when no one else is looking, we need to plant the goodness into the world that we would like to see. As, rede as redeemed people, we get to invest the rest of our lives for rewards both now, here in this life, and rewards that we'll receive eternally. Paul tells us that Jesus' life was given as a way to restore our broken relationship with God. And this is a promise that's not just for us, it's for every single generation. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful, and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Friends, each of you has a life to give. You have a limited quantity of time and energy to invest into something bigger than yourself, something global, something timeless, something life-changing and history-altering. So friends, each of us today have to make the decision to spend our time sowing seeds of hope, seeds of peace, seeds of love, seeds of goodness into the world around us. Let us always work towards bringing about the kingdom of God, not just later on. We can't just expect that to happen when we die, but let us look forward to bringing about the kingdom of heaven here and now on this earth. Let's not wait. This week and always, friends, our challenge is to focus on ways that we can be sower, a sower of goodness into the world. The world needs it, right? And when the time is right, we will all reap the benefits. Friends, let this story of Esther penetrate deep into our hearts so that we can see that when we're willing to sacrifice, when we're willing to give, when we're willing to bring hope and love and peace, we will reap those rewards as well. My prayer is that each of us won't be afraid to sow freely the seeds of our faith. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Community Cast. We hope that you were blessed by today's conversation. If you'd like to know more about Community Brookside, please feel free to visit us at our website, communitybrookside.com, or find us on your favorite social media outlet. We hope to hear from you soon. Be blessed.